You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Through this gospel, uh, something big happens in this passage and that Jesus is actually sending his disciples to go and do uh, what he has done. Uh, Jesus sends his 12 disciples into Jewish territory uh, into uh, the villages of Galilee. That's the passage that we're looking at uh, this morning. Um, a, a bit of that, that uh, passage can be uh, communicated by you little theologians. If you draw for me a picture of a, a village inhabited by people, but then draw one person walking into that village. Okay, draw one person walking into that village. This is what the disciples are sent to do, to go into these, uh, into these villages. Again, Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 1. Let's do this. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at this Scripture. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we thank You for preserving this Word over the centuries. Different languages, different cultures, this Word has always been uh, preserved. And we find this Word to be inerrant and authoritative and wish to submit ourselves to it more and more and wish to admonish our brothers and sisters with this Word. Spirit, would you help us to do that? Would you give us a proper understanding of your word? Would you teach us? Be our tutor this morning as we look into your word. We ask this not by our own merit, but by the merit of our wonderful Savior who died for us, was resurrected, and sits at the right hand of the Father. In his name we ask. Amen. So again, Luke chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 1, uh, all the way through chapter 9, or verse 9, Luke 9, 1 through 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the word of our Lord. I want you to imagine... Uh, a, a Christian brother or sister whom you don't think is as humble as they could be. Uh, it's probably not a pleasant thought to begin looking at this passage, but I, I have a point. Oftentimes when we look at brothers and sisters who struggle with uh, the sin of arrogance and pride, uh, we think that that kind of sin, that uh, abject lack of humility, um, is going to hurt them in a number of ways. We perhaps lament for their hearts. I wish that my brother or sister was humble rather than arrogant. We might lament for their heart. We might lament for their marriage. 
what it must, like, must be like for their spouse to live with such an arrogant person. Perhaps we lament for their friendships, knowing that we ourselves don't like spending too much time around uh, arrogant, boastful friends. Or perhaps we lament for uh, their children. Uh, their children have to live with this uh, boastful, arrogant person, and I wish that they were more humble. But I wonder if we uh, lament uh, all of those things. I think those are reasonable things to lament that an arrogant person has to struggle with. But do we lament for the gospel? That it is so difficult for an arrogant person to bring any measure of the gospel to a waiting world? Do we wish that they were humble for the sake of the gospel message? that by that humility they might be a better proclaimer of what they believe in. Yes, it is true that arrogant people can proclaim the Gospel. And yes, it is true that uh, some of, perhaps some of you even here have become believers through someone who is arrogant and proclaiming the Gospel to you. But oh, for the sweetness of a, a humble presentation of the Gospel. A man or a woman who does not consider themselves more significant than the person they're sharing the Gospel with. A man or a woman who is able to describe the wonderful hope that is within their hearts because of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And as they share that hope, they are able to do so, as Peter says that we ought, with gentleness, with respect. Woe is an arrogant heart, not simply for what it brings to their relationships, but also what it brings to the proclamation of the Gospel. And I think what we see here in this passage this morning is disciples who are made humble, that out of that humility they might be useful to Jesus, that they might proclaim not their own message, but the message that belongs to their wonderful Savior. They are humble disciples, and if they aren't humble disciples, Jesus makes sure that they go into these villages with a proclamation that is saturated in humility. And I think what the passage is telling us this morning is that we don't have a mission, even as Christians. Jesus has a mission. And He has condescended to broadcast that mission through us. Would that we go and be a proclaimer of someone else's mission. Only a humble person is able to do that. The arrogant person is going to meddle the mission of Jesus with their own mission. We don't have a mission. Jesus has a mission. I want to begin by looking at the first six verses of this passage and noticing that the disciples actually went. They actually did what Jesus commanded them to do. And then the second part of the sermon is looking at the second part of the passage beginning at verse 7. They went, verses 9-6, through six, but they were noticed, verses 7-9. through nine. They went and they were noticed. You see, Jesus sends His disciples, calling them here apostles, messengers. And His messengers, they're not to carry their own message. They're to carry the message of the One who sends them. But how remarkable that they actually did this. It is true that Jesus sends them, but I'm drawing your attention to how remarkable, how miraculous it is that they actually went because these disciples had numerous uncertainties in their relationship with Jesus They, for instance, had witnessed a storm that threatened their very lives, and yet Jesus calmed it. These people had met a man who was possessed by a legion of demons who led this man to dance among the tombs, and they couldn't account for that either. 
Jairus' daughter actually died, but then Jesus rose her from the dead. And then the bleeding woman whom they saw sneak up behind Jesus was slowly dying herself. Up to this point, the disciples have seen many things that they can't quite explain. They can't wrap their minds around. And you would think that they would be so riddled with uncertainties that they would not obey Jesus going into the villages as He has commanded them. In fact, I'd ask that you'd consider this, that up to this point, the disciples have displayed very little maturity. Recall, of course, that Luke is writing this gospel account to a man by the name of Theophilus. And as he's writing this account, he's writing to to stir up Theophilus' assurance in the things of the gospel. Theophilus is a Christian. And as Luke is writing this gospel account to stir up the assurance of one man, up to this point, Luke has given us very little evidence that these disciples have very much maturity. We hear more professions of faith in Christ Jesus at this point in the gospel from demons or from those whom have been healed, not from the disciples. There are times even when the disciples seem somewhat ignorant. For instance, uh, they don't quite get the parable of the sower and ask Jesus to explain it to them. And though the disciples are certainly believers, we can go back to Luke chapter 5, and Peter says there, Depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. Uh, That is a cry of someone who is a believer, who is uh, aware of their sinfulness. But though the disciples are believers, they don't seem to be cut out for this mission. And I want us to acknowledge that because they went. They actually went. Still looking at Luke chapter 9, if you skip forward a little bit to verse 10, we read this. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. They actually did this mission. They performed this because Jesus asked them to do so. And then they come back and they share the news. Now, the news is very brief. We'll look at this passage three weeks from now after Palm Sunday and after Easter Sunday. But they actually went But there's a few things that we have to notice about their going. The first is that their purpose is not their own. Their ability is not their own. And their manner reflects this. Their purpose is not their own. Their ability is not their own. And their manner of going reflects this. First of all, their purpose is not their own. Their purpose is to be exactly that of Jesus. He delivered a message of God's kingdom. He healed. And they're actually going out mimicking what Jesus has done. And Jesus says to them that they are to proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 2, but also in verse 6 of our passage, they preach the gospel. The same thing with regards to their ministry of healing. We're not told once, we're told twice. In verse 2, they are, told, they are given uh, power, they're told to heal. And in verse 6, they're uh, told to heal. But first, the proclamation, they proclaim the kingdom of God. They preach the gospel. How many sermons do you suspect that these disciples have heard Jesus preach? It's impossible for us to know what kinds of sermons the disciples actually preached. I've just uh, said to you that these men don't seem like the preaching type. We've seen very little evidence of that. We'll have to wait until we receive our glorified bodies and we get to meet these disciples, at, at least 11 of them, to find out what exactly their preaching ministry was like. But I want you to imagine that right now. What kind of sermons must these have been? I think that evidence in the text would uh, caution us to think that these were uh, eloquent sermons filled with classical rhetoric. 
And my hunch is, is that they're not those kinds of sermons. Did they simply exposit Isaiah chapter 61 over and over again? They've, they've heard Jesus do that in Luke chapter 4. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he opens a scroll to Isaiah 61, a passage about himself, and maybe that was their own habits of preaching looking at the Old Testament and describing uh, what that says about Jesus, the one who has sent them into their very own village. Or maybe they're expositing Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to look at that passage uh, a little bit later. They certainly are thinking of Isaiah 53 after Jesus ascends into heaven. Did they simply tell stories about the life of Jesus? Imagine that. These men, the year and a half time that they've had with Jesus, have had plenty of time to, to uh, collect these wonderful stories of what Jesus has done. Uh, Jesus uh, helped them catch a great catch of fish. Uh, they witnessed Jesus uh, heal a paralytic man who has dropped through a ceiling. Uh, maybe they just told those stories. Or having been told how to understand the parables, maybe they tried their hand at it. Maybe they told parables. Certainly the parables of Jesus. Maybe they told other parables. What was that preaching ministry like? The evidence would tell us that it probably was not striking. They probably were doing all of those things, telling the story of Jesus, repeating sermons of Jesus, looking into the Old Testament that they might uh, find Jesus there and explain that to their hearers. But they're not simply proclaiming a, a message that they have heard them heard proclaimed to them by Jesus. They're healing. He sent them to preach, but He also sent them to heal. Why do you think healing was added? Some very good pastors today believe that this healing ministry is exactly that ministry of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the ministry of healing that is a a part of the charismatic gifting of the church, and that there are some in the church who have the gift of healing, and that's exactly the kind of healing that these disciples have. And I think that this healing ministry of the disciples is actually very different than the healing ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12 is a very difficult passage. I'm actually grateful that I'm not preaching from that passage this morning. But I think that there's something that we can discern in Scripture that tells us what exactly was the point of this healing ministry as the apostles go forth proclaiming the gospel. I want you to keep in mind what we know already about Jesus' own healing ministry The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of details about how it is that Jesus heals. For instance, uh, think about this. It's not clear that everyone whom Jesus healed was actually a believer. Luke chapter 4, verse 40. Many were brought to Jesus and He laid His hands on everyone and He healed them. We don't have in Luke 4, 40 evidence that that they were believers. And because they were believers, then they were healed. We're not told that. Many were, but it seems as though many were not. It's also not very clear that he always had the power to heal. In Luke 5, verse 17, we read that on a certain day, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Is it possible that there were days in which the power to heal, a Holy Spirit power, wasn't with him to heal? And adding to the confusion about the healing ministry of Jesus, uh, later on in Luke chapter 9, verse 40, the disciples are going to attempt to cast out a demon, seemingly uh, an ability that Jesus has given to them, but they actually can't do it. And so there's a lot of uh, a mystery about the healing ministry of Jesus. But if we go to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 8, we're given a, a key to understand what exactly is it about this healing ministry that should be important to us as readers here. You see, the ministry of healing served to authenticate that Jesus was the central figure of that message. 
They're preaching a message, and Jesus is all over that message. The message is centered on Jesus. He is the very one to fulfill the entire story of redemption. That's what the message is about. And then healing would follow close on the heels of that, that it would authenticate that Jesus is the center. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. They brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. And listen to what Matthew says in his gospel. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The healing ministry of the disciples is very specific to the message of the disciples. In fact, it's Jesus' message. And Jesus gives power to the disciples that they might draw even more attention to the central figure of that story of redemption, which is their message. That is, the healing ministry of Jesus served to back up the message. You remember uh, fights as a kid, where a kid would make a tall charge, saying uh, whatever, some big promise, and and, uh, you would look at at, at at the kid and say, well, prove it, back it up, prove it. And that's what the healing ministry is doing, is they're preaching the gospel. The healing ministry would authenticate that message so that those who knew the Old Testament as they were listening to the gospel proclaimed would actually sit up and notice that this is the one who is spoken of in the Old Testament. I want you to listen to a lengthy passage from Isaiah 53. It's very familiar, but I want you to think about the disciples going into the villages and proclaiming a message, possibly even expounding upon Isaiah chapter 53. And notice how Jesus is described here. Listen carefully. This is Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 5. And he, Jesus, had no former majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And listen to this. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's not a ministry simply of going into the villages and healing. It's a healing ministry that draws veracity to the central figure of the story of redemption, the very work of Jesus. And is this passage of Isaiah 53 not the gospel itself? It seems as though that Jesus gave his disciples a specific power of healing with a specific purpose in the revelation of himself. As the disciples go out, Jesus wants there to be no doubt whatsoever whose mission this is. The disciples would preach a message. The message would be authenticated by proving that this man is the one spoken of in the Old Testament. It's important to note that in Matthew's Gospel, it is very clear that this is a ministry to Jews in the synagogues, ones who would know that Old Testament proclamation that the Messiah would be one who brings health. They preach and they have a healing ministry by God's or by Jesus' power that they would then be able to authenticate what has just been preached. But listen to this. Their ability is not their own. The message, the ministry, the purpose is not their own, but their ability is not their own. They're there for the purpose of satisfying the Father's plan. If you look at verse 1, you read, He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, if anyone thought that this was a ministry of the apostles, they would have had it all wrong. The apostles can't do any of these things. All that the apostles can do is to use what the Father has already given to them. 
He gave them power. And they display this radical dependence in not simply their words and not simply the healing, but they, are, they actually embody it as they walk into a village. Look, they're told what they're to not take. Don't take an additional tunic, one piece of clothing. Presumably, if it gets damaged, they're going to need to ask for help or assistance. Uh, they're not to have a staff. Perhaps that's uh, representative of the fact that they are physically vulnerable. No bread, no money, complete dependence on others. Uh, no bag, but of course, they don't have any money or bread to carry in that bag anyhow. And this is how they're to walk into a village. We know that they have power to preach another's message, power to heal, which is the power of someone else. But then just the way they look, they look like a people who have absolutely nothing. Jesus scrapes from them, scrapes from them any human strength. Remember, I asked you to entertain what those sermons might have been like. They're likely unimpressive themselves. These men don't look impressive. And as they come to a house, they have no position of leverage, none at all. They're in many ways at the mercy of those who help them. They arrive, and they are weak, and they are relying upon something to happen before they ring the doorbell. Something has to happen before they ring the doorbell, or they'll never be invited in. They'll never find any care there. They are entirely dependent upon God. You see why I began this sermon by talking about the humility of gospel proclamation. Jesus sends them to proclaim the gospel, but He takes every human strength away from them before He does so, so that they are entirely dependent. You know, this actually intensifies, this, this lack of possessions it intensifies another part of their ministry, that they're not just to preach, but they're actually to judge, to judge those who don't believe. If they're not received by a house or a village, they're to shake the dust from their feet in verse 5. You know, to us that seems uh, silly, purely symbolic. But in Jewish tradition, this was something that was done when you were traveling through a foreign territory. Heaven forbid this should ever happen, that you would have to travel through a foreign territory, a land populated by Gentiles. But if you were, if you had a special need, that would be a tragic circumstance. You're in the land of Gentiles, and now you need food or money or shelter. What a tragic circumstance to be in. But if that ever did happen and people refused to help you, refused to have mercy for you, this is what you would do. You would shake off the dust from your feet. And that would be a way of saying to them, good riddance. Why? You're unclean anyway. Why would I have hoped anything more? You're unclean anyway. And so you shake your feet, you say good riddance, but it's also a sign of judgment. You are, after all, unclean. You know, it's not they, the disciples, who get to make this judgment. The shaking of their feet is to, sh is to show the owner of the home, the inhabitants of the village, that it's not our judgment that you ought to fear. It's a greater judgment. It's what was said to Gentiles. They are unclean, and they will be finally judged. You know, their ability is not their own. Their power is not their own. Purpose is not their own. And their manner should reflect this. You know, oftentimes, 
We think that we have to look like the world in order to uh, receive attention of those whom we plan to share the gospel with. You know, if you want to uh, reach a professional, you need to dress like a professional. If you want to uh, reach someone who is a blue-collar worker, then you need to dress more informally that you might be able to reach them. And this might be a proof text for something like that. But I want you to consider that these disciples entered a village and they looked pretty much like everyone else, just a bit more needy. They didn't look like the wealthiest people in the village. They looked pretty much like everyone else or a little less. The kind of people who don't have very much. And so they come into a village before they say a word with weakness, with need, just a little bit pathetic, with nothing to commend them. You know, they look a lot like Jesus, don't they? They're actually appearing like the gospel. They look a lot like Jesus, as he's described in Isaiah 53, one with no majesty or no form that would draw our attention to him. They look an awful lot like Jesus. Or maybe it would be better to say this, that they are saying that Jesus looks an awful lot like us. Perhaps the disciples are to look like the gospel that they might remind their hearers that Jesus made himself to look like us. Insignificant humans. He took on our nature that He might save us. And the disciples come looking like that into these villages. But let's, let's jump forward after verse 7 and let's say this. Let's say that they were certainly noticed. Verse 7 says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. You know, it's good for the gospel to be noticed. But the disciples had the power and authority over the spiritual world. They had the ability to cure diseases. Shouldn't we hope for more than just being noticed? But this is what Luke tells Theophilus. They were noticed. Remember, the disciples are actually serving not their own mission. They're serving the mission of Jesus. And it may be that our definition of the success of the gospel is different than our Lord's definition of the success of the gospel. Do you remember that the disciples did not understand the parable of the sower? I think they do now. You don't know the heart of that person whom you're sharing the gospel with. Sometimes you just have to simply share the gospel and wait for results. Now, we know that some individuals did become believers through this ministry, and some didn't, for sure. Some hearers proved to be good soil, but some did not. And what Luke wants to show us is an individual for whom we think, we're not sure we think, uh, represents bad soil, Herod. And what Luke tells us is he tells us that Herod is perplexed, and what we later learn is that Herod is curious. Herod's the same age as Jesus, the same age as John the Baptist, but he grew up in Rome. Powerful family, very wealthy. And Herod had a relationship with John the Baptist because to Herod, John the Baptist was a do-gooder was someone who told him that it was wicked for him to divorce his wife and to take the wife of his brother. And so Herod had imprisoned John, and then he executed John. And all of this happened right in Galilee, right under the noses of believers in Galilee. And what's interesting is that Herod was haunted by this act. Historians say that when Herod lost a war abroad with the king of Arabia, he blamed it on the execution of John. He had executed John and somehow that bad karma has sneaked its way into other events in Herod's life. Herod is a haunted man. 
Perhaps that's a reason why Herod is perplexed. But we're also going to learn later that Herod's not simply perplexed, he's also a bit curious about Jesus. When Jesus begins to leave Galilee for Jerusalem, uh, Luke 13 tells us that Herod is very angry with Jesus, actually wants to kill Jesus. But on the night of his crucifixion, Herod is very glad to see Jesus in Luke 23. It's interesting that it would be Luke who tells Theophilus. You remember that guy Herod, that one who was perplexed by the gospel but didn't believe in the gospel, the one who was haunted by his wickedness of the past? That man was actually very glad, exalted in being able to see Jesus before he was crucified. And he questioned Jesus, and Jesus said nothing. Herod is perplexed, but he's curious. What do you think this is supposed to teach us? What do you think Luke is trying to teach Theophilus? Is he trying to warn him that preaching the gospel doesn't always yield positive results? Could be. Theophilus, listen to this. These disciples had all kinds of power and they went and they preached. But Herod, he was simply perplexed and curious. The gospel didn't really stick. So... As you proclaim the gospel, Theophilus, make sure that the results are not all, you know that the results are not always going to be positive. Uh, that could be the message. But I think that there's two things that we need to draw from this. I'm going to leave you with both of them. First, we should expect the gospel to draw out contradictions of our hearers, to perplex our hearers. There is a part of the gospel that as we share it with our non-believing friends and family members, uh, it actually is perplexing. You know, Herod doesn't believe in the resurrection, but at the same time he cannot escape the possibility that maybe this John the Baptist guy came back. Maybe he's the exception. Herod, by principle, doesn't believe in the resurrection. But then there's this John the Baptist guy and just some weird stuff is happening maybe the resurrection is real. I mean, the terrifying thing is that John will one day receive his glorified body. There is a resurrection. But Herod doesn't seem to have room in his philosophy for the gospel. The gospel shines a light on his own contradictions. I want to offer an illustration from a book called Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton talks about a, a professor, a man by the name of Dr. Eames. It's fiction. Uh, And Dr. Eames is a philosophy professor, and he is a proponent of philosophical pessimism, uh, just a fatalistic view of the world in which life is not worth living, that God is dead, and that anyone who uh, is naive, if they dare to hope in something more than that which is physical, he's a pessimist. He's mimicking a couple of famous philosophers, but that's the the philosophy of Dr. Eames. And then this young student uh, meets the professor in his office one day, and as they're talking, uh, the professor is promoting this philosophy of pessimism, that God is dead and life is just not worth living. You're just counting your days, fatalistic about everything. And the student pulls out a pistol, and he threatens the professor, drives him out the window onto the ledge of the building. And the professor is hanging onto a ledge. Ironically, it's a, it's a gargoyle. And the student threatens to kill him. And the professor pleads, and the student says, Do I understand that you want to get back to life? And the professor says, Yes, indeed, I want to get back to life. And the student allows the professor to come back in the window, and he says, Dr. Eames, thank you for saving my life. And the professor says, I did not save your life. You, you tried to kill me. 
And the student says, no, you saved my life because you preached to me one message about pessimism, but when I had a pistol to you hanging on the ledge of the building, I could see in the gleam of your eyes that there is, that there is wonder in life and that it's worth being a part of. Thank you for saving my life. You preached one way, but you can't actually live that way. And Herod is sure that there's no such thing as the resurrection, but somewhere there is a hope of the resurrection. Something is curious about this Jesus. Something is up. And this is what the Gospel does. It perplexes us. It puts us on the back of our heels. Uh, Some of the things that we would believe as a non-believer are true. But there's a lot of suppression of the truth there, according to Romans 1. A lot of exchanging the glory of God for the glory of man. And the Gospel comes and highlights those contradictions to us. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 13 uh, that God will break down our whitewashed walls so that the foundation is laid bare. This is a part of the Gospel message. It perplexes us to such a degree. It breaks down our sense-making mechanism and shows us that it is bare For the unbeliever, the gospel makes cherished philosophies, favorite ways of making sense of the world prove to be nonsense. They won't sustain us after all. The gospel perplexes people. But not only does the gospel perplex people, Herod is confused. Verse 9 says, but who is this about whom I hear such things? I think this is a very important part of the passage. Luke 9.9 But who is this about whom I hear such things? The Gospel is centered on a who. That's what Herod's after. Who is this who? There's a man involved. Who is he? Tell me about him. Martin Lloyd-Jones was famous for saying the most important question in the entire world is what do you think about this Christ? What say you about Christ? Luke 9.9 That's what Herod is asking. And that's instructive for us, isn't it? Not only will the Gospel expose our uh, crooked philosophies, rearrange the furniture of our existence as non-believers, the Gospel is centered on a man and challenges us with that question, what do you think about this man? His name is Jesus. He is the man. The Gospel is not about a church or a denomination. The Gospel is not about a person's intellectual ability to describe that message. The Gospel is not about an individual's courage to share that message. The Gospel is is not about privation of life, uh, doing without material possessions. The Gospel is not about being uh, a citizen of a particular country or a member of a certain kind of culture. The Gospel is not about anything at all other than a man with a capital M. But who is this about whom I hear such things? The disciples never let their message veer away from the person of Jesus Christ. Herod is concerned about one matter. Who is this Jesus? And clearly, the disciples made this Jesus the very subject of their preaching, the very subject of their healing, and the very appearance that they carried as they walked into the city. Utterly dependent upon a man. You see, Christian, we don't have a mission. Jesus has a mission. His life is a life of atonement. The situation of every man and woman on earth is one of rebellion before God. It's not just a sickness, it is a sin sickness. Eternal separation from God. No way to return to Him but through His Son, Jesus. This is the man. The disciples have nothing to show but Christ. They have nothing to say but 
Christ's work. It's about a man. Now, as Christians, we believe in this man. This, is man. this man is our salvation. And as we come and we worship, we approach this table and we are partaking of that man. We are admitting that we continue to be absolutely defenseless without him. We have no philosophy that accounts for the gospel. It is far too wonderful. It is beyond imagining. And we come and we partake of the bread. We recognize our sinfulness more and more and more as we live in Christ Jesus And we love his grace more and more and more. That's the cup. Christian, the gospel is about a man. And it's not you. Let's pray and then we'll come to this table. Our Father, we do thank you that you've drawn us together. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us. Thank you for the uh, unchanging gospel that we can count on that message, that it is uh, your power for, power for salvation. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.